0: serial entrepreneur, founder, and CEO of AlterCall, a New York Times bestselling author. He is also the former co-founder and CEO of multi-level marketing company Visalis Sciences, which he exited for over $790 million. While Ryan's accomplishments are incredibly impressive on their own, they're even more shocking when you learn about his backstory. He grew up in an abusive household, dropped out of high school his freshman year, and even got arrested multiple times. It wasn't until he met his mentor and stepdad at age 17 that he turned his life around. He enrolled in a local community college, and within three years, he made over $100,000 investing in the stock market and started his first business, which he sold for over $25 million in his mid-20s. Ryan then co-founded ViSalis and took the company from startup to more than one. million $1. 6 billion in sales, eventually exiting and selling the company for $792 million. Ryan has devoted the rest of his life and career to help entrepreneurs break through in their mind, body, and soul to enable them to scale and build their company in a conscious way. Ryan's story is all about learning how to become profitable, even when life deals you the worst hands possible. Tune in to gain Ryan's insight on how to pick your inner circle, prepare your company for a successful exit, and how to capitalize on the right time to sell your business. We'll discuss why Ryan believes there's no better ROI on your money than investing in your own business, and why he thinks taking a company public can help solidify your entrepreneurial legacy. And lastly, we'll uncover how Ryan helps entrepreneurs create conscious companies that puts their impact and purpose above their profits. If you want to get inspired with one of the best rags to riches stories I've ever heard, keep on listening. Hey, Ryan, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm super excited to have you on. And for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, you are a best-selling author of two books. You're a serial entrepreneur of many extremely successful companies that have exited for hundreds of millions of dollars. You And you first became a millionaire in your early 20s. You're also a philanthropist and a social media influencer on top of all of that. And there's so much to talk about in terms of business and failures. But first, I want to skip to your journey. And in some instances, I don't talk a lot about journey on Yap. But in your case, it's really important. And I think it's really inspirational. And I think it can show people who listen to our podcast that you can overcome adversity and poverty and you can become successful no matter of your past and no matter of your childhood. So I love these stories of transformation. And after doing my research, I found out that you actually gained your first business experiences through gang activity. You struggled as a kid, uh, you suffered with ADD, dyslexia, amongst other things, and you even faced jail time at just sixteen years old. So, what was your family like? What was your childhood and teenage years
1: like? Well, my my childhood was filled with a lot of suffering and a lot of trauma. My dad was a very violent individual, and you know he had a lot of trauma himself that he had never healed, and he took that out on his his wife, my mother, and and the children. So early childhood was filled with a lot of very scary things. Uh, My mom and dad both were addicted to drugs and alcohol. And as a result of that, I didn't really have much of a mother or a father growing up. And early on in my life, my dad was very successful as an engineer. And then the drugs took him over and got the better of him. And we lost our middle class environment. We lost the house, the cars lost everything basically. And so at a young age, around 13 years old, I had everything ripped away from me. And at that point, I had to move into poverty and I started hanging around uh, the wrong kids and got jumped into a gang and was basically forced in. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, I'm living a life filled with crime on the streets in and out of juvenile hall and making a lot of bad decisions. So that was You know, up until about 17 years old, until my life changed dramatically when I got my first mentor.
0: And looking back on those experiences and being involved in those kind of activities, is it something that you regret or do you feel like it's an advantage now?
1: It's definitely advantage. Suffering is an advantage. Suffering is the best teacher that you can learn from. So all of the suffering that I've experienced has just taught me so much about life. And I would not be the man that I am today if it were not for the suffering. So I believe that from a spiritual basis, my soul needed to go through and, and really learn suffering so that I could now learn the other side of it and, and to live a life that's not suffering at all.
0: And so how did you do in school? Would you say that you naturally excelled at school or was it something very difficult for you?
1: I was terrible at school. I dropped out of high school my freshman year. I could never pass a math test or an English test. I couldn't pass a basic proficiency test to go from freshman grade to sophomore. And I was considered to be learning disabled, uh, a disadvantage ever since early childhood. And it turned out that that was more of a product of my environment rather than a product of my aptitude and capacity. Because once I started to uh, dream about entrepreneurship and become an entrepreneur, I then went and got my college uh, degree, or my, sorry, my high school degree, and then went into college and accelerated in school. So I always thought that I was terrible at school. I bought into that story. I believed that story that the teachers and the administrators told me. But then when I found a love for something, I learned how to learn. And then once I learned how to learn, I was able to make up for a lot of the ground that I lost.
0: Hmm. I love that, that you say that you feel like your, your failure in school was really as a result of your environment and also your sense of purpose, I guess, and your passion for what you were actually learning. So I think that's a really great point.
1: Yeah, well, the school system teaches you how not to be an entrepreneur, Right. So the entire system is structured to teach you how not to be an entrepreneur. And that's why they, you know, they tell you like go to school to become a doctor or become a lawyer, but no one tells you to become the person that pays the doctors and the lawyers. And so being an entrepreneur, would you rather be a doctor or would you rather be the person that employs the doctor? And when I learned that, I was like, wait, why didn't they explain to me that career option? You know, I didn't I could skip med school and law school and go straight to employing doctors and lawyers. And I was like, that's a better track than the $200,000 law school track or the $300,000 med school track.
0: Yeah, totally agree there. So, okay, how did you end up getting the experiences to become an entrepreneur? I I know a lot about your story and we're gonna get into like, you know, how you made your first million at 22 and all of that. But what were the experiences before that that gave you the foundation to become the amazing entrepreneur that you ended up becoming on so early?
1: Well, I had no choice and I was not afraid to take risk. When you've suffered like I have and you've been beaten up and you've gone to jail and you're, you know, you lost your dad and your mom's an alcoholic, you know, you understand how difficult life can be and being an entrepreneur can be difficult, but it's not that difficult. You know, I I would tell people like I've been shot at, like I've literally had people try to take my life on a number of occasions. And when you have... That degree of, of survival instincts and difficulty, being an entrepreneur is a cakewalk. And so the contrast of my life lended itself very well to the field of entrepreneurship. And, you know, and, and so that, that I guess that would be a, the first element of it. Also, early on in life, my father would incent me through compensation. So he would give me money if I uh, pulled weeds or cleaned his car, or he'd give me money if I got a base hit in the baseball game, or I did good in sports. And so I had instilled in me, and I, I love my dad very much, although you know he uh, you know projected a very terrible experience onto us, I still love him. He gave me some foundations in terms of you know, being driven to uh, achieve certain success and to receive money for that success. And I had that instilled in me very early on, that I had to make my own money. And he never gave it to me, he made me earn every penny of it. And so because I, a compensation uh, was instilled in me, the behavior of, around compensation was instilled in me early, that I was able to accelerate my compensation at a very early age.
0: Mm, That makes a lot of sense. So it's like you knew that if you provided value, you got money, it didn't just get handed to you, you had to work for it. And- you got it on your own. So that makes total sense.
1: I would Mm -hmm. go practice baseball, not because I wanted to be great at baseball, because I wanted my dad to give me the money he promised me (laughs) if I got three base hits. So I'd be out there all day long practicing so that way I could get paid after the baseball game. So like technically I was a professional athlete at a very young age because I was getting paid to play sports basically.
0: Oh my God. That's so funny. Okay. So you started making some real cash uh, aside from baseball when you were 20 years old, uh, trading stocks of all things. And you made over a hundred grand when you were that young, I guess you were in college. Where did you get, you know, information about trading stocks? How did you get into that? Where'd you even get the money to trade? Tell us about that.
1: My, my first mentor was, he had a company called Tricor Securities and I was his apprentice. And Tricor Securities was uh, equities, commodities, and real estate. So they had a portfolio in all three of those categories. And so I was exposed to the way he traded stocks. And so I just mirrored him and mimicked him. And my initial cash that I got from it was through school grants and school loans. So because I was awarded the court, I was able to apply for certain grants. And as a result of the grants that I received, I would then invest and I would shadow invest him and, you know, I'd pick my own stocks, but I'd also listen to the stocks he was picking and I would shadow invest him, basically. And that was how I was able to accumulate a hundred, over 100,000 in trading profits within about a year's time as a very young man.
0: And so you ended up getting your first sports car, your first house when you were very young. How did your family and friends treat you with all this newfound money? Did they treat you nicely?
1: No, um, they still don't treat me nicely. No one... When, when people are stuck in belief systems and you are not, it is going to make them very uncomfortable. And the more successful you are, the more uncomfortable you will make them because you represent a challenge to their beliefs. If their belief is that they only deserve uh, a medial existence, and you're saying, I don't believe that. I believe I deserve a hundred times that. And I'll tell you another challenge is, you know, I've profited from my story and some of my family members, they have done anything but profit from it. In fact, it has been their excuse for not being profitable. And so when they see me making money off a shared story and they're losing money on that story, it can be a conflict to their values, their beliefs, and it can create jealousy and it can create you know, a lot of negative energy around it. So I've dealt with that my entire life. I've also dealt with that in my career, and I still deal with that. When you write books and you put yourself out there as a public figure, you're gonna have to get used to people that are just gonna try to tear you apart
0: and I've had that same experience. You know, I'm a young entrepreneur. I have a team of 70 all around the world. And I find that my family is supportive now, you know, the come up journey they were not, you know, but that my family is supportive now. But my friends, like especially my high school friends, the people that I grew up with in the same town and everything like that, they can't stand it like I'm on the cover of podcast magazine they don't even share it you know what I mean like they can't stand to see that success and it's just funny how the closer people are to you or the or the more close they are to where you came from the harder it is for them to actually support you and just like respect the hard work that you put in to get where where you're at so I can totally relate there
1: Well they don't see the hard work they don't understand it because they're not doing the hard work and So they're suffering if you're not fulfilling your soul's purpose and you're not extracting everything this life can give you like you're not extracting out of life everything that it can possibly give you you you're technically going to be suffering and those people are suffering and so they believe that if they try to make you suffer is they'll suffer a little less. So they'll gossip about you, they'll tell lies about you, they'll criticize you, because they believe by making you suffer that they suffer a little less. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. When they try to make you suffer, they actually suffer more.
0: Hmm, so how do you go about picking the people you surround yourself with now?
1: Now, it's a little different. I look for, well, so I've become very skilled at identifying personality traits, and I have an intuition about where a person is at in their lives. And I attempt to surround myself with people that I can align with, um, that can provide value to me and that I can provide value to them. The value exchange has to be mutual for them to be a friend. Now, my colleagues, my team members, you know, I'm looking for people that have uh, hunger. They're driven. They're they're growth oriented. They're willing to to make the adjustments and make the changes necessary for them to grow. Because when you're growing an organization, you can only grow to the extent that your team is growing. So if you grow your team, you by default grow your business. And so I look for people that are serious about their growth and that are willing to do whatever it takes to to accelerate their growth. And I'm very particular about that in the recruiting. Uh, for my team members. And then for my friends, I look for people that are going to inspire me because I know that I'm going to inspire them.
0: I love that advice. Uh, So let's talk about how you got to your first million. I read that you got to your first million at 22. What did that look like?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I started a company that was a multi-million dollar company at 22. By the time I was 24, I'd sold it in a $25 million transaction. So what I'll tell everyone is when you start a company that is going to be valuable and you create and you put a lot of work into that, you could become a millionaire very quickly. You might not, uh, it'll be on paper, of course, you might not receive the million dollars yet, but you can get there very quickly. So I was first a millionaire on paper. And then after a few exits and a few transactions, I then became a millionaire in cash. A lot of people don't realize the distinction between the two because There's a number of people walking around there touting that they're millionaires, but they haven't yet become a millionaire when it comes to cash in the bank or assets on hand. They're just simply a millionaire, perhaps on paper, based on the evaluation of their business or whatever it is. And you hear a lot of people saying they're billionaires using the same valuation metric. So, you know, there's there's kind of a difference between when you're there in cash and when you're there in, in paper. But it's still a meaningful thing to be there in paper. And then the next step after you get there in paper is to figure out how to get there in cash. Uh, I got there by building a valuable company and then by exiting that company. And I've done that a number of times, but that would be the first way that I got to the millionaire status.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and profiters. They may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales. Young and profiters, are you dreaming about starting a course? Do you want to go from one-to-one to 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 one-to-many and scale yourself? If you're thinking about starting a course, then you need to hear about Kajabi. Kajabi is the OG of course platforms. I've got creators in my network like Jenna Kutcher and Amy Porterfield who have been using Kajabi for over a decade. These ladies know what they're doing. They are literally the course queens. Go to kajavi.com slash profiting and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. I definitely want to dig into exit strategy because I am one of those paper millionaires, not yet a cash millionaire, but a paper millionaire, a multimillionaire. And, um, you know, exiting a company is a big part of creating generational wealth. It is the way that people become billionaires and, you know, 100 millionaires. It's by exiting companies, not necessarily just creating them and running a business, right? So do you actually plan your exit strategy as you're entering a business, like, do you always know that you're going to exit a business or do you just create companies and then it just naturally kind of happens?
1: Well, you you always design a business to go public, which is a form of an exit. So the way you're designing it and architecting it should always be with an exit in mind. The other way that we exit is through dividends. So you can own a long term company. And the profits of that company get dividended out to shareholders of which you're, you know, the, the most the largest one, for example. And so that's a form of exit, too. But in order to dividend, in order to go public, you have to have your financial house in order. You have to have a company that's providing value that has a defensible uh, product in the marketplace or a defensible competitive proposition. You, there's a lot of attributes that are necessary to have a company that is going to either exit by paying you dividends to where you literally have other people running it and that company continues to pay you or by way of being acquired by another party, um, a joint venture uh, or a public offering. I always design the business with the intention to go public even if I plan to maintain it to be private because when you design it with that level of, of foundation, uh, it's going to lend itself to Uh, exit events or opportunities to extract some liquidity from the business more often. So you always design with that intention. Now, in some businesses, I knew I would exit it. Like Sky Pipeline, I knew it was an exit play. I was designing it for the short term to take advantage of an opportunity in the marketplace. And I took advantage of that opportunity and and sold. Um, ViSalis. I knew I was going to exit that business too. I actually Bought the company at 20000 a month, scaled it to $65 million a month, and then sold it in a $792 million transaction. And I knew from the minute I stepped foot in that, that business that I was going to build it for an exit. Now I'm building more for a public offering. Visalis, I sold it, and then I filed it for IPO, and I went through a public offering process and then ended up canceling that and uh, remaining uh, and, and completing a transaction with the acquirer, which was a public company. And so having experience, having been a part of public company transactions, and I was the CEO of the largest division of the public company that acquired me. So I have a lot of public market experience. I'm building a company that will one day go public now.
0: That's super interesting. I'd love to kind of like pause and backtrack on how you actually grew those two companies and then exited them. Like, what was your actual plan? Like, how did you build that business in a way that it would actually be sellable afterwards?
1: Well, one, get people on your board, investors or mentors that have bought and sold companies. So I had no idea what I was doing, but I had great people mutually invested in in my future that were experts at buying and selling companies. And they insisted that I build the company uh, so that they could excuse me, one day exit. So it's so important to make sure that you're surrounding yourself with great mentors and you have great people that are going to help you. Secondly is hire the best talent that you can that have also been through these processes. Because when you have talent that has gone through exits or talents that have done strategic ventures or venture capital investing and things like that, those talented individuals are gonna give you the knowledge that you, know, that, that you don't have yet to get to where you wanna go. Every one of us has... A knowledge gap. You know, the difference between me and a person that has yet to build a multi-million dollar company is just simply a gap of knowledge. Um, and once you fill that, you, the way you fill that gap of knowledge is you get people around you that have done what you want to do, you pay them well and generously, and then, you know, you, you drive toward the collective vision of the, the group.
0: And so in your experience selling all these companies, sorry, I'm I'm asking so many questions because a lot of people that come on my show actually don't really exit, like, you know, don't have so much exiting experience and you do. And I actually had Sharon Letcher on the show recently and she talked a bit about this. So it's fresh on my mind. So talk to us about what were the metrics that these people were looking for when they were evaluating your business when you were trying to sell it? Yeah, it's
1: a great question. Number one, everyone wants growth. So if you have to have a growth Uh, company, company that's growing revenue line, profit line, and that has a tremendous market opportunity for growth. That's what people are buying. They're buying your growth. So you want to be in a category that's growing and you want to have a unique approach to that category that has an opportunity for growth. And then you want to build a, a religion in your company around growth and And so that's extremely important. The market pays for growth, and it pays a multiple for growth, which is what you're looking for. You know, I exited at an eight times multiple on my my profits. and And so that's because there was growth that was projected that was well beyond a single year's worth of profits. So your growth and your growth projections are gonna be important to that. The other ratios that you have to have in alignment, the most important one is, what percentage of profit are you delivering to the bottom line of your um, total revenue? So in the case of, of Vysalis, I was doing 635 million in revenue and I did 97 million in profit that year. So I had a great revenue to profit ratio that was conducive to a company that could continue to invest in its growth and invest in its expansion. Now, how you get to that level of profit, there's a combination of things that you have to be able to do. But ultimately, it comes down to your revenue growth and your profit and your profit growth. So your revenue growth should match your, your, sorry, your profit growth should match your revenue growth. Your profit shouldn't go down as your revenue goes up.
0: Very, very interesting. And I love the fact that you said you have to be in a growth category and be in a growth state. A lot of people, I think, wait too long and sell their business when they're you know, at a low point or they're desperate. And instead of selling their business when it's actually the best time to sell, which is when it's going really great. Isn't yeah. that right?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm mentoring an entrepreneur right now who's about to complete a $75 million transaction to sell his business and he's selling at the very uh, peak. He's a young man, he's just turned 30, and he's selling right at that, that cusp. And part of the dilemma that we've, you know, we've worked through in my mentoring of him is, it, you know, should he keep the business or should he sell the business? And after doing some analysis and having some deep discussions, He's selling at the perfect time. And so, you know, you, timing is everything on these things. If he stuck around another year or two, he might not get $75 million for his business. He might get $7.5 million for his business.
0: Well, can, can you dig deeper on that? What, what makes it the perfect time to sell?
1: Well, for him, it's the amount of market share that he's captured in the marketplace and how ripe the marketplace is for his product. And so it's, it's a timing thing. Now, you're not always going to get this right. Another entrepreneur that I helped mentor the sale of his business was a gentleman by the name of Gerard Adams, and he had a company called Elite Daily. And, you know, they had just gotten to a place where their website had 70 million uh, unique views happening a month, and then they sold it to a publicly traded company. Now, it still remains seen if they had held on to it, could they have done something with those 70 million uniques that was beyond the 50 million that they received? They decided to sell because they were young and they wanted that cash if I had owned the company, I wouldn't have sold because I've already made 50 million. I would have tried to hold out for 500 million, but I would have been willing to risk the 50 million. And so that's the, the the barometer is like, how would you feel if you didn't sell and you could have made 50 million and you didn't sell and you made 5 million? Like, how would that affect you? For me, I can stomach a loss like that because I have such a, a, a broad view on risk and I can take risk. I have a lot of capability to do that. It's like if I I've left billion on the table before. And so things like that, you know, it, it bothers me, it teaches me, but I so believe in myself that I believe I will leverage the fact that I left a billion on the table to make more than that. Um, and so I, I don't get too caught up in that. But some people would be devastated, like they would never be able to live life the same way, knowing that they've left a billion dollars on the table.
0: I think this is a great segue to something that you talk about often, which is risk quotient and failure quotient. Could you explain those two concepts to us?
1: Yeah, you just got to be good at failing. You got to love and embrace failure. Every successful company has failed its way to that success. Every failure, if you if you view every project and every product as an experiment, and experiments fail all the time. That's what they're designed to do. But from those experiments, you're going to extract best practices, you're going to learn. And then the next time around, you're going to do it better. I equate entrepreneurship to house building. You know, I, my first house that I built in the field of entrepreneurship, you know, it, it wasn't that great of a house, but, you know, it ended up being worth $25 million. And then I built another house that was worth $700 million. The third house that I'm going to build, I'm building now, I'm, I'm 100% sure it's going to be worth something far greater than the last house that I built because I'm taking with with me into my new house, all of the old house best practices. And I'm learning from and leaving behind all the failures and all the short sightedness and challenges that I face. So, you know, entrepreneurship is building and building is failure, building is learning, building is trial and error, and you just have to get good at that. So, you know, I, I really embrace failure. I look forward to the learnings from it and I plan my experiments in a very meticulous way so that I can extract the data from it and then I can apply the successes toward you know, future endeavors.
0: And then, in terms of so you have this concept risk quotient failure quotient. And I think the failure quotient is when you're evaluating whether or not to do something, you think about what would happen, like, what is the risk of of failing? Like, if I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I suck and my business tanks and I'm embarrassed with my friends and families, like weighing that risk of everything as well. Can you talk to us about that kind of decision making?
1: Yeah. you. Yep. You really, the, the reason why my book is called Nothing to Lose is, you know, that was the mindset that I had. I, I didn't fear, I, when I really looked at it, what do I really have to lose, especially for the younger audience, you really don't have anything to lose. It is critical, though, to not worry about the opinions of others in your thought process and to realize if you're not taking the action necessary or taking the risk necessary, then it might be because you're worried too much about what other people believe But when I realized like there was no way I was going to go back to the poverty and to the gang infested crack house that I was living in, I knew that that was not an option. Then I realized I really had nothing to lose. And that's why it's so easy to take action as a younger person, because you don't have a mortgage yet. You're not paying for kids yet. You don't have kids in school and a variety of different other different responsibilities that prohibit you from taking action. So as an entrepreneur and a young entrepreneur, it's like you should be the most deadly entrepreneur in the marketplace because you truly don't have anything to lose. You know, you can get by with very little and you can put all of your time, effort, energy and money back into the business. And even now, as I have a small startup that's only a couple of years old, I pour every dollar that that company makes back into the business. You know, it's making millions of dollars a year. And I'm not out buying Lamborghinis and buying those things, With the money, it's like, no, not a chance because the return on investment that I receive by reinvesting that money back into the business is far greater than anything else I can spend that money on. There is no better return on investment than investing in your business and scaling your business.
0: I definitely agree. I invest all the money that I make from sponsorships on my podcast back into my marketing and podcast agency. And it is the best decision because what's better than investing in yourself and the business that you own? So I totally agree there.
1: Yeah. You you, you might the return on investment, if you can get, you know, if you're running advertising, for example, and you have a ROAS of five X, like there is nothing you can't buy Bitcoin and get a five X ROAS in a month. You can't buy NFTs, and, I mean, you can in rare circumstances, but not, you know, not in a predictable, duplicatable fashion, day in and day out and get five extra money every time you trade a Bitcoin. You're just not gonna do that. But you get five extra money if you can build a company that gets a five times ROAS. So, you know, there's just no better profitability than uh, having a return on investment uh, strategy that has a high yield within your own company, much better than going after this shiny object or that shiny object in the marketplace.
0: Yeah. So I'd love to kind of pick your brain in terms of why your current company, and I think are you, when you're saying IPO, are you talking about Altercall? or yeah. Are you talking about a different company? Okay. Altergal. Okay, cool. So I guess I'm wondering why you decided that that company is worth an IPO versus just selling.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to sell again because I've done that. I've already done that a few times and I have that experience. And when you sell, it's like you're selling your baby, and all of your children that are part of this company, your customers, your team members, you're like packaging them up and you're saying, okay, you have a new father. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really that way. And it can be terrible for some of them. And it's tough to rebuild a team again. And so I, I'm at, I'm 44 years old. And so at this stage in my life, I'm building my last team. You know, I'm, I'm building a team for the next 20, 30 years, however long, you know, I, I decide to continue to, to build teams and I'm building a last team. And so I'm, I'm building this in a way that is going to create a legacy, you know, and so the IPO strategy is a way to create that legacy and a way to make sure that I'm able to preserve the team and continue to have a legacy that my family can participate in well beyond my active years in building businesses.
0: Yeah, and it seems like AlterCall speaks to a, a mission in terms of how you want to impact the world that maybe some of your other companies didn't necessarily do. So talk to us about the mission of that company.
1: Well, we, we are a conscious company. And so we are building a model of 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 how to operate as a conscious company. And we're a coaching platform. So we coach entrepreneurs. We have a number of different people that we've taught, different practices and different frameworks and curriculum and so forth that I've uh, shared with you a little bit here. And then we deploy that into the field and we help entrepreneurs create conscious companies. The individual I was telling you about that I'm mentoring on a $75 million exit is one of our customers. And so we help them you know, develop and scale and build their business in a conscious way. And by conscious, I mean, making an impact, um, you know, seeing their business, our entrepreneurs see their business vehicles as an opportunity for them to manifest their soul's purpose in the marketplace. And so we're helping entrepreneurs make an impact and their business vehicles are the way that they're actually achieving that.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and Profiters, I'm about to be jet setting all over the world. I'm going to London, Cancun, New Orleans, and New York to speak. I'm gonna be up there with the bright lights, and I want to be spiffy. I want to look fresh, and so I'm going on a big shopping spree. I gotta get clothes, I gotta get hair stuff, skincare stuff, makeup. But I'm not gonna feel guilty about this shopping spree because Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Rakuten is the shopping platform for savvy savers. From May sixth to May thirteenth, they're having their biggest cash back event of the year. I'm talking about fifteen percent cash back at hundreds of stores That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to racketon.com or download the Rakuten app at R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password and then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. From my understanding, there's a lot of like spirituality and meditation involved. So what is kind of the intersection of that? What's the relationship between spirituality and entrepreneurship?
1: The relationship between spirituality and entrepreneurship is to the individual entrepreneur. The entrepreneurs that we tend to attract all have their own unique faith. That's not what we're teaching. We're teaching them how to connect to their own unique specific faith, utilize the tools of meditation, breath work, mindfulness, and a variety of other modalities that we teach So that way they can bring their best energy to their work product. So they can be more decisive, have better discernment, execute with greater efficiency and productivity, and ultimately be more generous. And so we teach entrepreneurs the duality between productivity and generosity. Spirituality is an important element of our entrepreneur's success because each one that's been attracted to our movement has their own spiritual faith. We have Muslims, we have Buddhists, we have Christians. We're not specific to that. We just want them to see that this is in connection, that the work that they're doing is a calling on their life that is connected to their higher power. And then the tools that we use to help them express that calling are the ones that I just shared, such as meditation and so forth. Now, it is our job at Altar Call to model a higher level of efficiency as a result of being a more conscious company and to spread that model and that level of productivity onto the other companies that we teach and mentor and ultimately to shift the culture of business to being more mindful. It is our belief that business is ripe for a, a disruption as a whole and that we can help uh, business as a category become more spiritual, become more mindful, and as a result of that, solve some of the problems that, are, that exist in our marketplace. Right now, the, the business world is creating a lot of suffering and a lot of pain for our planet, a lot of suffering and a lot of pain for their employees and their team members. That's why we're seeing the great resignation. And so we're creating a new model of business that we hope will spread a light into many different businesses uh, in the world.
0: Cool. I I would love to understand what a conscious company is exactly. So why don't you compare and contrast a conscious company versus an unconscious company?
1: (laughs) Well, a conscious company would... Put their impact and their purpose first, um, and they would operationalize to that impact and that purpose. an unconscious company might put their greed first, their ego first, right so it might be the desire of the owner you know the owner to receive power and uh, and so the company exists for the owner's power, or the company exists to profit above all else, and that might mean that they would damage the environment that might mean that they Uh, use uh, child labor in, in third world countries. That might mean that the decisions that they use or that they deploy are counterproductive to a society that desperately is suffering and desperately needs to be healed. So a conscious company is building a product and a service in such a way that it's actually uh, maximizing the impact that it can make and making the world better, making the team that they're working with better and their customers better. And they're focused on that purpose as being their highest order, as opposed to their profits or their, their, uh, their desire for wealth or status.
0: This is like a key theme that I've been hearing lately. You know, I've been doing this podcast for about four years and more and more am I hearing people talk about this need to put a cost to your cash, you know, a purpose to your profits, that kind of a thing. Um, you know, some people call it the generosity purpose. Everybody has their own kind of like, you know, phrase for it, but it's becoming more of a thing. This, this, uh, social entrepreneurship essentially.
1: Yeah. It's, it's an awakening You're, you're, and The cool thing is, is capitalism is is one of my favorite subjects to talk about, because when capitalism sees a company like AlterCall build a coaching platform utilizing these new methods, it will automatically adopt these new methods because the marketplace will reward those people that utilize these methods. And if these people utilize these methods and turn out a higher degree of profitability, the rest of capitalism will have no choice but to adopt or perish. And so it's my mission to be a catalyst for that disruption in the marketplace.
0: Super, super interesting. So I'd love to go back to some of your failure, because when I was reading your story, it was a roller coaster of ups and downs. And from my understanding, in not all instances, were you that great with your money? Like you made a lot of money, but then you would like lose it. So talk to us about the importance of like, how to manage your money if you end up making a lot of money and selling your company and becoming a successful entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, well, the best way I could describe this is I put all of my energy in making money and I didn't put any energy into saving it. And now that I'm a little older, I realize you kind of have to do both. But I developed the skills to make it. And I have to tell you, that is the most important part of a business. If you get the top line right and you have a skill of making money, you can figure out how to save it. You can hire people that'll help you save it. But if you never developed the skill of making it, you know, you're going to have a lot of trouble in business. So I put all of my energy into that. But I made so much of it that I didn't have a respect for money, you know, because I made so much so fast, so early. I didn't care. Like people would see me throw a million dollars away. And I just didn't care because I knew I could make it. And that's not a long-term strategy because it becomes more fun to spend the money than it becomes to make the money. So eventually you start spending the money and you receive a lot of pleasure in spending money. And there's more pleasure in spending it than making it. And then you become out of balance. and next thing you know, you have no money left. So i learned in my later years how to have a balance between making it and receiving pleasure from it and investing it and so forth. So it's important to learn both of those two modalities. But what happens when you start making a lot of money is you just gain, you know, you have a lot more options. And when you're young and single, like, you know, I was and am, I, I don't spend money like I used to. You just, you tend to experiment a lot more with all your newfound wealth. And I, I made a lot of dumb investments I bet millions of dollars on uh, bad companies. I wasted millions of dollars in stupid things like bottle service uh, and you know pri- private jets and stuff like that that I had to do. I have no regrets, but you know, I, I could say that I have at least $50 million that I've just lit on fire in my life to the point where now I don't have to do that. I got it out of my system. And now I'm a much better steward of money.
0: Yeah. So do you have any sort of methodologies for saving or are you just like, I just need to at least save, you know, millions of dollars? Like, is there any methodology or, or is it just?
1: Yeah. You you know, I, I have, um, a very conservative approach to money now because I'm 44 years old and, you know, I, I want to make sure that when I'm 84 years old, that, you know, that I'm, I'm not, uh, Thinking about making money, right? I shouldn't have that thought uh, process in my mind whatsoever. I should be spending time. My goal is to spend time in philanthropy and and so forth. So, my um, my saving strategy is very conservative. I don't invest in volatile things. I know a lot of people are going to hate to hear this, but I I don't run in on you know the game stock or this stock or this Bitcoin or this NFT. And the reason why is I have a son who's twelve years old. I want to make sure that I'm preserving uh, a significant portion of the wealth that I'm creating today uh, to make sure that I can. Uh, see that into the hands of my son and, you know, my heirs and that they can continue to create a legacy with it. So I'm much more conservative now. And so, you know, my mindset is I I save a significant sum of my money and I put it in very uh, conservative items. But to be specific, I'm I'm saving at least 10 percent of every dollar that I bring in.
0: I think that's a a great rule of thumb. So as we start to approach the end of this interview, I do ask my guests uh, some of the same questions at the end of the show. And then, you know, we chop them up at the end of the year and do fun things with them. So one of the last questions I ask is, what is one actionable thing our young and can do today to become more profiting tomorrow?
1: Learn how to generate revenue, sharpen up your skills, When it comes to sales and marketing, those are the two things that drive revenue. And if you become very good at sales and marketing, the rest of everything will fall into place.
0: Mm, I think that is really, really important. Sales and marketing, I feel like people don't realize that, especially as an entrepreneur, no matter what you do, you need to be great at sales and marketing. So that's a great tip. Okay, and what is your secret to profiting in life?
1: I try to extract as much value out of every moment as I possibly can in every experience. I'm constantly learning. And so I look at everything that I'm doing as an opportunity to learn. Each day I re- reflect on what I learned the day prior and I set my sights on what I wanna to learn today. They're not always the same. You know. I, sometimes I, I learned something I didn't expect uh, to learn, but each day I learn and so each day I grow. And as a result of that, you know, I'm constantly transforming.
0: And are you reflecting in a journal or in your head? Like, what is that practice like?
1: For for me, the contemplation is in a journal. And um, I, I you know, jot a few notes, not too extensive for me personally, because I have a decent memory. So each day I just go back. But I, I spend the time contemplating. I spend at least an hour each morning in total contemplation where I'm philosophically thinking about, my experience from the day prior, what I want to let go of, what I want to carry forward, and then what I want to achieve today. I've done that enough days in a row to where I look forward to each day. Like I literally go to sleep so excited to be able to take on the next day each day. And you can program your brain that way. You just have to do the practice that I just shared with you enough times in a row.
0: Mm, I love that. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do?
1: You could go to altercall.com. It's A-L-T-E-R-C-A-L-L.com. Or you could catch me on Instagram. I'm at real Ryan Blair, and just shoot me a DM.
0: Awesome. I love this conversation. So many tips for entrepreneurship. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hala. Wow, what a truly inspiring conversation. Ryan has a rags to riches story that really didn't disappoint. This former gang member was handed very few opportunities early in his life, and now he's a respected serial entrepreneur with a $792 million exit and a New York Times bestseller under his belt. Now, that's a come-up story worth bragging about. One of the biggest takeaways for me was Ryan's perspective on why younger people should be more Open to taking risks. He believes that the younger you are, the less you have to lose. No mortgage, no family. And I loved when he said if you're not taking the action necessary or taking the risks necessary, then it might be because you're worried too much about what other people believe. Remember, Please don't let others stop you from following your true calling. And don't let yourself stop you either. And while we're at it, don't let your age stop you. We can all agree that it's easier to take risks when we're young. We don't have that many financial or personal obligations. But don't let your obligations or age deter you from following your dreams or starting a new career path or a business path. You are never too old to start something new. You may just need to approach it differently. Maybe you can't go all in, but you can certainly tiptoe your way to it. And with that said, Yes, it's true that young entrepreneurs do have an advantage. Like Ryan said, when you're young, you can basically put all your time, effort, energy and money back into your business. And even now with Ryan's company, AlterCall, making millions of dollars a year, he still pours every dollar he makes back into the company. Like Ryan said, the best ROI you can have is investing in your own business. And I completely align to this. I could be taking home so much more money with Yap Media, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year more. But I choose to reinvest that money back into the business, including all the advertising revenue we make on this podcast to continue to grow and scale my business, to hire the best employees, to invest in new product innovation. And I invest in myself by investing in my business because I believe I'll get a higher return on my money than any stock or NFT or index fund could ever give me. The other advice I loved from Ryan was how to choose your inner circle wisely. I really resonated with this because the more successful I've become as an entrepreneur, the less the friends I grew up with support me and hang out with me. To be honest, I really lost a lot of friends over the last two years as I scaled my business. And like Ryan said, he thinks some people can't support us when we shine because they're actually suffering inside. In Ryan's own words, if you're not fulfilling your soul's purpose and you're not extracting everything, this life can give you, you're going to be suffering. And so these people believe that if they try to make you suffer a little, whether that's gossiping about you or not inviting you to a party or whatever it is, they'll suffer a little less. Ryan chooses to surround himself with people he can align with that provide him value and that he can provide value too. He believes this value exchange has to be mutual. And I definitely agree. I've been actively making new friends the past couple of years that fit this model. And it's a beautiful feeling when you get to work and thrive with your best friends. My business partners are literally my best friends now. And it's such a fun way to go about life. I couldn't imagine having a more fulfilling job. And it's all because I'm in business with people that have become my best friends. The other highlight for me in this conversation was Ryan talking about how he's building his last company with Aldercall. He's building his last team and he's building this business to create his legacy, which is why he's deciding to IPO rather than sell so he can preserve his team and create his legacy. I thought that was so unique and cool. At Altercall, Ryan teaches entrepreneurs the duality between productivity and generosity and how to build and scale conscious businesses. A conscious company or business puts their impact and their purpose first and builds a product and a service in a way that actually makes the world better and not worse like many companies do, whether that's hurting the environment through pollution or abusing workers. This is truly an awakening right now in terms of businesses having a generosity purpose. This idea of social entrepreneurship or conscious business all share similar themes, and we've covered it quite a bit on the podcast lately with number 154 with Mark Batterson and Derek Kinney from a recent Yap Live. I like to think of conscious companies as businesses with a soul. And if you want to learn more about this topic, be sure to check out these episodes. Thanks so much for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you drop us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. It's the number one way to thank us here at the show. Be sure to connect with me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at Yap with Hala or LinkedIn, just search for my name, it's Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team as always. This is Hala signing off.